Welcome to Asia-Pacific Defense Reporter, your go-to source for cutting-edge security insights in the region. Get ready for rapid-fire analysis and commentary from the Asia-Pacific with your host, Kim Bergman. Hello and welcome back. With these podcasts, I normally don't worry about breaking news because there's a delay of a couple of days between recording them and when they become available. But there are a couple of contemporary events that are certainly worth mentioning. The first is a decision is imminent on land 400 phase three, the somewhat controversial infantry fighting vehicle project that has been heavily cut back by the Defence Strategic Review from 450 vehicles. Some pessimists thought it might have been 300, but now the number is 129, which, as I've said before, seems exceptionally low, and I'm not sure what the justification for it is. Two contenders, Rheinmetall from Germany, Hanwha from South Korea. There's not a lot of point, since we're so close to knowing who has been selected, into going in a huge amount of detail about the virtues of each bid. We can do that retrospectively. I will simply observe that the government of Germany has been pressing very, very, very hard on this one. And there's quite a lot of hype and exaggeration floating around. In the last podcast, I mentioned the export of boxes uh, from Australia to Germany, which I think has been a case of really over-egging that particular pudding. But these things can have an effect. So if Rheinmetall were to be selected, it wouldn't come as a particular shock in the current climate. The big loser, of course, would be Hanwha, because not only would they not get this infantry fighting vehicle contract, but they were another casualty of the Defence Strategic Review, which cancelled the second tranche of self-propelled howitzers, a decision with which I fundamentally disagree with. You only have to look at what's going on uh, with Ukraine fighting back against the Russian invasion, to understand how effective well-used self-propelled howitzers can be. This idea that they're all going to be replaced by rocket artillery is just demonstrable nonsense. But if we're going to talk about projects being cancelled, allow me to reflect for a moment on the way that the Defence Department, the Defence Establishment uh, has been behaving. And let's have a look at cancellations Uh, made without notice, and sometimes I think for very spurious reasons, just in the last few years. Okay, I mentioned uh, Hanois propelled howitzers. General Atomics, Air 7003, the armed UCAV, the Predator B or Sky Guardian or whatever configuration that was, that would have given Australia a lot of striking power very quickly and very cost-effectively. Why it was scrapped? I don't know. No one really knows. General Atomics don't know. There was never a statement to Parliament. It just disappeared. My own belief, and this is one for which I have zero evidence, but I'm happy to go into in a, a lot more detail on a future occasion, is that it was going to come with British weapons. Now, that might sound like a very strange reason to cancel something as important as this, but there's a faction in the RAAF who are just so wedded to US weapons that they are simply not interested in looking at anything else coming into the inventory. Anyway, that's a bit of a digression. Next, 
Naval Group, cancellation of the attack class submarines. We know all about that. And then also on that list, Elbert, the Elbert Battle Management System, which is now going to be retendered after a, a delay, also cancelled without public explanation. And on top of that, we can say pretty much the entire Australian sonar industry is going down the gurgler because of this outrageous decision that I keep on going on about to buy the Surtas Toad Array System from the United States. So when you group all of that together, it's a significant number of acquisitions that have just been that have just been scrapped. Okay, with the attack class, we've got some sort of explanation, some justification, but for the others, nothing at all. Australia now looks entirely capricious on the international stage when it comes to defence acquisitions, and there are serious consequences. I can assure listeners that I know personally of three companies that are reviewing their decisions about whether to make any further investments in Australia at all. That's, you know, building extra facilities, it's taking on additional people, it's putting money into pursuing opportunities. The climate is very anti-industry, particularly anti-Australian industry. The, the, the short-term consequences and medium-term consequences are that companies other than US-owned multinationals will basically start to pull out of Australia. And I think that would be an extremely unhealthy development to occur. In any other portfolio, with this sort of record of behaviour, ministers would be under pressure to resign. There's just no doubt about that at all. But as I've discussed previously, because defence is in the pretty much the unique position of having bipartisan support, the coalition very rarely would be attacking any of these decisions, some of which, by the way, were made under their watch. So they're not going to turn around and criticise themselves. Labor aren't going to criticise themselves. All that's left standing are the Greens, who have a variety of, of agendas, and they, they just don't have the time and the resources, and the independents. And you can say very much the same for them. And th th it gives me no pleasure to say this. I do sometimes wonder whether I'm being too pessimistic, but then when I read commentary from uh, journalists such as Greg Sheridan saying pretty much the same thing as I'm saying, it at least lets me know that I am on the right track because I can assure all of you that Greg Sheridan is no left-wing peacenik who, who somehow is out to criticise and destroy defence for ideological reasons. It's the complete opposite. Greg is somebody like me who believes that Australia needs a credible military and things are just going badly awry. Now, I'll also just make a little housekeeping announcement before we get into the large topic that I'm going to try and cover, submarines again. And that is that this is podcast number 10 in the series. We decided that we'd do an initial 10, see how they went. Now, the feedback has actually been pretty good. So I will do a further series. I'm going to have one week break because I've got a little bit of travel coming up. Now, if, now some of you have supplied feedback. But, but if anyone wants to email in ideas, suggestions, stuff like that, please feel free to do so. Also, 
if you think that what we're doing is worthwhile, please get other people to listen in. I just have the basic belief that the more people who know what's going on, the real story, with then the better off the country is going to be. Okay, now the main story for today, or main area, again, is submarines. And I'm going to tell everyone a little bit of history that's not well known. I wrote about this in an article for the magazine, I can't remember, maybe a year ago or something like that, an important bit of background about the Collins program that's highly relevant to the circumstances of today. And that is the Falklands War, way back in 1982. Now, at the time, the Royal Australian Navy had taken delivery of a total of six Oberon-class submarines, which performed very well. They came from Britain, of course, Royal Navy pedigree. Now, at the start of the Falklands War, the British, the Royal Navy, abruptly and totally cut off all support, spare parts and things like that, for our Oberon fleet on the basis that their needs came first. Now, I don't know whether this has been documented. I don't know whether the cutoff was delivered over the telephone line or via telex or whatever, but it definitely happened. And I know because I've been told by a number of submariners, and you can understand why Nobody really wanted the story to be, be made public because you don't want to be disclosing your strategic vulnerabilities. Anyway, with this experience in mind, the Australian submariners were very strong in pushing for the local construction of the Collins class. They'd been badly damaged, potentially badly damaged, by this cutoff of spares. The Falklands War only lasted a total of about 10 weeks nasty, vicious little conflict that, that it was. And I assume that as soon as it concluded that the flow of spares to Australia was resumed, but it scared the life out of everyone knowing that this was a strategic vulnerability. Now, back then, approval for what became the Collins class project required a great deal of bureaucratic scrutiny and analysis in fact, there was an entire division in defence called Force Development and Analysis. I was not privy to any of their meetings, but I know a lot of people who were involved in them and on the military side of things, trying to get approval for this new class of, of submarines was, for some of them, an excruciating exercise because they were really made to jump through hoops. First of all, why is a submarine capability needed? Okay, that was relatively easy but then issues of why they should be built in Australia. What was the capability going to be used for? Were there other ways of achieving the necessary effect without submarines? All of this sort of stuff was debated at length at multiple meetings. And the decision that ended up was the consequence of a huge amount of work and a huge amount of analysis. You compare that with the AUKUS nuclear-powered submarines and none of that has happened. It's just been a top-down decision, something that happened at a political level. The Royal Australian Navy didn't know about it. The USN didn't know about it. The Royal Navy did, but that's another little aspect of this story that I'll go into on, on a future occasion. And so what we've had now is a sort of retrospective justification, or even worse, just this simple assumption that somehow 
Virginia class submarines and whatever the Orca sub turns out to be, if it even exists, is some sort of wonder weapon that fixes all of Australia's strategic problems. It's not. The point of this, and this is the other contemporary development that I want to refer to, I mentioned last week the connection between the Robodet Royal Commission and the the AUKUS nuclear-powered submarine task force. And I was quite coy, but now all of this is in the media, and the, the common link is that the former secretary of the department concerned. The connection is that the former head of the Department of Human Services, Catherine Campbell, was moved into the AUKUS task force as a senior advisor in circumstances that are opaque. The reporting has been on a salary of $900,000 a year. That probably doesn't even include the 17% superannuation on top of that. Now, the latest news is that she's now been stood down without pay from uh, the AUKUS task force. Now, I'm going to do something very presumptuous of me that I very rarely do. I'm going to give some advice to the Prime Minister, the Defence Minister, and the Industry Minister. And that is, you should check all of the advice that's come from the Nuclear Power Task Force very, very carefully, because it could be tainted. I've touched on a couple of matters before, and I'm going to remind you of them again in a moment, where either you have been misled, or you are now misleading the Australian public. There's really no alternative to either of those scenarios. I would dearly love to see the advice that the Nuclear Powered Submarine Task Force has given on the matter of the disposal of Virginia-class submarines, the second-hand Virginia-class submarines that we might or might not receive. Who came up with that idea and who has agreed to it? And I have in mind also another event just from a couple of days ago, the uh, the blocking by the federal court of the go-ahead of the proposed Kimber nuclear waste storage site in South Australia. And that waste storage site was only going to be to house low and intermediate level material, nothing like the highly dangerous, long-lasting stuff that's going to come off a nuclear-powered submarine. If the department informed the government in excruciating detail, as they should have done, about what's involved in disposing waste from a nuclear-powered submarine. And if the government has agreed to go along with that, that has huge consequences for Australia that have not yet been explained to the Australian public. And I just raised the basic question, where, with the Kimber decision now, now taken, where is the disposal site going to be? Um, I joked once before about advice being provided by Vice Rear Cabin Boy Sir Bobo Gargle. Maybe that joke was not really as funny as I originally thought. Anyway, let's move on. Let's have a look at what's happening in the United States. And in particular, I find it galling that so much information is available there quite openly that informs or could inform the debate about what was about to happen in Australia, but is just either being ignored or, or overlooked. The Congressional Research Service, the research body that advises uh, Congress on a whole lot of policy and acquisition matters, is one of, in my opinion, uh, one of the world's 
most worthwhile bodies of research and opinion on policy matters to listen to. 600 people, 100 million US dollar budget. There's no Australian equivalent. Our parliamentary library is tiny and under-resourced by comparison. Now, the CRS uh, published a report of many, I might say, on July the 7th, looking into the future of the Virginia class program and, in essence, what they are showing. And a lot of this, you know, it, it, it's fact-based. It's not speculation. They're, they're, they've got numbers. Uh, they've got research. They rely on speaking directly with people in the, the US military. That They've got a big problem just ma- meeting their own requirements for the number of Virginia-class submarines that they need. The nominal, the magic number of SSMs that the US needs at the moment is 66. The speculation might go up. At the moment, they're on 50, and they've got a big problem because actually over the next five to six years, that number of submarines in service actually declines. And that comes about because at the conclusion of the Cold War, was the peace dividend, and the US stopped ordering as many of the Los Angeles-class submarines as they needed. That's catching up with them now. So the number of available submarines is actually going to dip. Now, on top of that, the Virginias are proving to be extremely difficult to maintain. You know, again, this idea that there's some sort of wonder weapon. I mean, they're good submarines. There's no doubt about that. But they are a cheap version of the Seawolf class. There are only three Seawolfs ever built. One of them, I touched on before, USS NS Connecticut, is out of commission for about another three years because it had the high-speed collision with the underwater rock. So they're down to two Seawolves. Now, Seawolf was so capable but so expensive that the Virginia-class program was stepped up to provide a less expensive alternative. Now, the problem is that by the USN's own account, when it was being designed and contracted, no one really thought about issues of maintenance. At the moment, in the US, there are 18 Virginia-class submarines, either in depot, undergoing maintenance, or idle, sitting in a queue waiting for their turn. This has increased from what the, look, the normal number of, of submarines in, in maintenance is about 11, and that is about 20% of the total SSN force. The number now is up to 37. These 18 boats waiting maintenance is 37% of the SSN force. Look, all of this stuff like should make people's heads explode because the problem that's occurring for the, the maintenance uh, backlog is due primarily to insufficient numbers of workers and facility constraints at the four government-owned naval shipyards. It's presumably into these shipyards and the supply lines where Australia's voluntary $3 billion contribution is going. While defence is facing a funding crisis and while they're cutting back on capabilities, $3 billion is going to US industry again. What sort of advice has this nuclear-powered task force 
given to the government. Have they told the government the full truth or has the government just gone along with something that really is very difficult for any like normal average person to understand? There's also a chance that some cracks are developing in the US approach to AUKUS. There might be a little bit of buyer's remorse or seller's remorse already starting to happen. I'm going to quote from uh, this report. It says, a potential alternative to the proposed sale of Virginia-class SSNs to Australia would be a US-Australian military division of labour under which US SSNs would perform both US and Australian SSN missions while Australia invested in military forces for performing other military missions for both Australia and the United States. Such a such an US-Australian military division of labour might be broadly similar to military divisions of labour that exist between the United States and its NATO allies. Under such a US-Australian military division of labour, the proposed forward rotations of US and UK SSNs to Australia would still be implemented. The size of the US SSN force would be expanded by at least three to five boats above previous plans so as to provide additional USSNs for performing Australian SSN missions and Australia, instead of using funds to purchase, operate and maintain three to five Virginia-class SSNs, would instead invest those funds in other military capabilities so as to create an Australian capacity for performing other military missions for both Australia and the United States. Well, my goodness, there you go. There are serious people in the United States already saying, maybe this isn't such a smart idea at all. Maybe we should keep the submarines, the Virginia-class submarines, for our own needs. The task ahead of the US submarine industrial base is massive. In terms of submarine tonnage, the US Navy will see a five and a half times increase between what they had in fiscal year uh, 2011 to fiscal year 2025. But the number of suppliers during the same period has dropped to about 5,000 companies compared to 17,000 companies that were around during the last submarine construction surge in the 1980s. Now, this is another government report, Government Accounting Office report, June this year, 2023. And again, I'll quote from this. Performance on Virginia-class construction continues to degrade, continues to degrade. The program now estimates construction of each Block 5 submarine will take an average of over two years longer than reported last year. The delays are due to problems meeting original staffing and work efficiency estimates. Now, on top of that, as I've done my best to explain, the US has a higher priority in terms of submarine construction, and they are the Columbia-class ballistic missile firing submarines. Each Columbia-class requires five times the amount of people and five times the amount of money to build a Virginia class. So it's an an enormous undertaking. And another estimate is that US industry will need to hire, This I'm not making this up, will need to hire an estimated 100,000 extra workers during the next 10 years, 100,000 extra across 
the entire supplier base. That's to meet the US requirement. Now, I'm running out of, of time. I had been hoping to cover more of this, but there's just so much detail. I'm going to conclude this segment with a quote from Rear Admiral Jonathan Rucker. And he says, this is a quote, coming off of the Cold War era Seawolf-class submarine designed to be fast, lethal, and stealthy, the Navy took a different approach with the Virginia-class and opted to build a submarine for an affordable cost to ensure we could get the numbers we needed. I'm not going to say that sustainment came as an afterthought, but to be honest, it was. A little break, a challenge we'll deal with later. Unfortunately, some of that challenge is here today. Indeed it is. Yet the story that we're being told in Australia, what little visibility we get of the nuclear-powered task force repeated by the government is everything is going to go wonderfully well. Well, unfortunately, I can assure you that isn't. Again, there's just so much to, to unpack uh, about all of this. Now, I'm going to, to conclude this slightly longer edition than normal. I hope you'll bear with me just with a quick comment. The budget situation in Australia is even worse than the situation I've previously described. The uh, ASPE analysis has the department 1.5 billion uh, less well-off cash-wise over the next three years than was previously projected. That amount will increase because inflation will remain higher than 3% for some time. So the, the missing money might be 2 billion, it might be 2.5, we, we just don't know. But here's the new bit of information. On top of that, in the last financial year, because so many things were put on hold by the Defence Strategic Review, whether that was necessary or not, didn't matter. The effect was, was that there was pretty much a freeze on acquisition. It meant that there was an underspend of about $1.5 billion. Now, the way that the Australian system works is defence doesn't get that money back. That, that's why managing the defence budget requires a lot of people working very hard. It just goes back to finance. So defence not only has less cash, they've also got this additional $1.5 billion of stuff in the pipeline that they've got to find money for. And on top of that, we're giving $3 billion to the US to contribute to their submarine base, and we're giving $309 million to contribute to their sonar industry base, while our own people are really going to be struggling. Okay. I hope you all have, uh, as well, a nice break from the sound of my voice for uh, a week, and I will be back in August. Thank you for listening. That's today's Asia-Pacific Defence Reporter. For more in-depth articles, expert opinions, and exclusive interviews, visit asiapacificdefencereporter.com. Stay informed, stay ahead. This is your source for all things defence. Until next time.